This, 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 we are gathered here today for the Fight Disciples UFC and Boxing Talk. Good evening. You are listening to Fight Disciples on Radio City Talk. Every Tuesday night, we get stuck into the fight scene that affects Merseyside. Uh, and even though it is, I suppose, the off season, as they would say in the States, there's still quite a bit to talk about. Or if there's not quite a bit to talk about, we will find something to talk about uh, in this sport that we absolutely love. Uh, don't forget, if you um, don't subscribe to us, you can do via iTunes. You can also get there via our website, fightdisciples.com. If you are on iTunes, uh, and that's how you consume this show on a, on a weekly basis, away from the radio, please write us a five-star review. Those five-star review help us when it comes to visibility in the iTunes chart. And obviously, the more people that get to see us, the more people that get to involved with the show, and then the more stuff that we can provide to you on a week-to-week basis. We're also on social media, at Fight Disciples, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Quite a lot to get through on the show today. As I've said, uh, we are going to be paying tribute to the greatest of all times, the man that probably inspired a lot of us to become fans of this uh, fine sport uh, in Muhammad Ali. It's a year, man. It's a year since he passed away. It's gone like that, hasn't it? It was crazy. It was It was kind of fitting at the Love Manchester concert as well, where they, where they almost finished before Liam Gallagher come on. They played like a, a Muhammad Ali, one of his speeches and stuff. I thought that was just like perfectly timed as well. Mm. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of a tribute on Muhammad Ali at the back end of the show, so stick around for that. Uh, we're also going to deviate away from boxing and into the world of UFC because it's a year uh, since Michael Bispin became the first UK-born uh, um UFC champion, world champion, um, by knocking out Luke Rockhold and becoming the middleweight champion. So we're going to discuss whether it has changed uh, the face of UK mixed martial arts in the second part of the show. But first of all, let's concentrate on boxing and let's concentrate on everything that's happening in Merseyside because we've just been having a little bit of a chat on the way to the studio today regarding the next six months for Merseyside boxing in particular. We've had a great 12 months. We had a great 18 months, really. Um, with everything that happened last year as we reviewed last last week. Thank you so much for your contributions to uh, what we did last week, having a look back at uh, Bellew's epic night at Goodison Park where people were getting dead excited about it, chills on the back of your neck listening to that commentary. Gets me every time that when uh, the commentator's going, Bellew's going for it! He's going for it! Bellew's going for it! He's going for it! (laughs) He's got him! (laughs) Love that. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for your kind words on that. So I thought uh, we'd have a look at the next six months, the upcoming six months, because if you think the last 18's been good, the next six could be absolutely unbelievable. And you being a historian of this city and the fine arts in this city, yeah. it could be it could be the greatest six months that Liverpool's ever seen. Very much so, yeah. I don't think in, in the rich history of, of boxing in Maze, on Merseyside, you know, in this city, we've never been as affluent as we are right now in terms of world title contenders. And the next six months will display that more than ever because, you know... Let's keep our fingers crossed here, but we, we've got, what, two, three confirmed world title fights coming up, yeah. and more than likely another two or three on top of them if the right phone call, phone calls come at the right times. It's super exciting time. Well, we're expecting over the next week, but maybe even by the time you're listening to this, it will have already be confirmed uh, that Paul Butler will get his shot at McDonald's for that Manson Wick crown. Yep. Um, we know that that deal's done. 
We're just waiting for some type of announcement. Don't know why that's the, there's a delay on that, but that's that deal done. As yeah. we spoke to Paul previously, uh, we know that that was his target and that is happening, all right? Um, a week on Saturday, Paul Smith Jr. is over in Germany yeah. uh, fighting Taron Zug for a version of the uh, middleweight we WBA go. crown. time lucky. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, and then his brother Callum is obviously in action uh, in September as he trips over to uh, LA uh, to take on uh, the Durrells. I say the Durrells because they come as a package now, don't they? Yeah, and an uncle. Yeah, watch out for them shots, son. <laughs> watch out for them shots. So they're the three that you've just mentioned that confirmed. are absolutely confirmed. Yes. Right? So the world title elev- uh, elite level uh, for Merseyside boxers coming up in the next, well, in the next three months, that. Yeah. We've still got three months off the back of that, then to obviously shoehorn a couple more in. Now, I'll stick with the Smiths for the time being, because even though Swifty is uh, due to be married in the summer, don't rule out uh, nope. somebody giving him a call by the Phone end, of, end of the year. Yeah, uh, but probably more uh, realistically, beef is the, your next one because we know that he's um, obviously tuned in for a fight, a re a rematch fight against uh, Liam Williams. Um, it will be in some way, shape, or form some type of eliminator for the uh, WBO 154 pound strap. That's going to get boosted because yeah, Canelo's yeah. on his way up to 160. Exactly. So, so that Canelo, belt is now vacant. Exactly. So Liam's old belt, the 154 belt that he lost against Canelo, the fight with Williams was supposed to be an eliminator for that belt. Obviously, the first fight with Williams, it was a bit of a mess. We're going to have to do that again. But because Canelo's going up to fight Triple G, that belt becomes vacant. So it mm. made perfect sense to make this final eliminator actually just for the full belt. And I think that's probably why we're still waiting for full confirmation of when the rematch is going to be. Because and and even, if it, even if it isn't, mm-hmm. it will be one step away. So exactly, if, yeah. if, once this is done, it will. if it is, let's say, an eliminator... Yeah. Don't ex- then obviously then expect Liam Smith if he comes through the fight against Liam Williams to be fighting for the full title maybe against Miguel Cotto because I know that the WBO absolutely love Cotto at this yeah. particular weight so it's if it's not this one one there'll be one more and you could probably get it in at the back end of this year yeah exactly yeah before the year's out big time and then sticking with the WBO of course we had news this weekend that, that Tony Bellew has confirmed that his comeback fight in November or December if he gets his way, will be against Joe Parker for the WBO heavyweight title. And if he doesn't, there's, a, there's still a potential for David Hay there. If David Hay can bring enough t- money to the table, there's potential. But to be honest with you, David Hay and his current situation, no trainer, only just getting back from injury, I can't see David Hay fighting again this year. So mm-hmm. I think there's more than likely that Bell you will fight for the WBO. Now, of course, the WBO heavyweight title, the number one contender remains Huey Fury. And they're making noises that that will happen in the UK in September. Yeah, exactly. But Huey Fury still hasn't got a licence. He still isn't fully fit. He's still saying he's got a back injury. Will that happen next? We don't know. I think... For me, I think Tony Bellew might jump ahead of Huey Fury under the understanding that he defends against the winner defends against Huey Fury within 90 days just because Huey Fury's not fit. Joe Parker is fit. He wants to fight. He wants to fight in the UK, as we know. And Tony Bellew's ready to become a two-weight world champion. Look at you. You're getting dead excited because obviously... Maybe want that statue. I want that bronze statue. Everybody that City listens Center. to this show on a regular basis knows full well that uh, Nick and Bellew go back where, where time. So whenever we speak about Bellew, his face just lights up. He's thinking, just imagine <laughs> this journey that we could genuinely be on. Now, we've confirmed that Butler... Paul Smith Jr., Callum. That's guaranteed. They're going to be fighting for world titles there. Let's just pick the bones out of those three for the time being, all right? Before we get all excited about maybe Bell, you getting a bronze statue on uh, somewhere in Waybetree at some bus station that we... uh, (laughs) Outside the quick save, didn't he say? Something like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So out of those three, which one do you give um, uh, the most realistic chance of becoming world champion? Bear in mind, locations that they are fighting at, yep. uh, the opponents that they are up against and where they're currently at in their careers. Yeah. Um, I think that the 
The easiest one to pick out for being the toughest will be Paul. Obviously, he's been to Paul Ge- Smith. Paul Smith. Now. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, he's been to Germany before. He's lost in Germany before. He's lost. He lost decisions in Germany. I think he goes there again. Another. It's a real tough assignment for him. He's just got a, a winning record. He's a young, brand new champion coming through, looking to make a bit of a statement, looking to make a name for himself. I think Paul knows it's his last roll of the dice. Um, I think that's the toughest one. I think that's that's they're the biggest odds, if you like. But you know, if anyone can do it, Paul can do it. And if you know, he's got that experience now. He knows what it takes. And at the end of the day, if he's sparring Callum and he can handle Callum in the gym and he can move Callum around and, and dictate Callum, I'm not saying he can, but if he can master Callum in the gym, hmm. who I believe is the best super middleweight on the planet to be to be proven this year, then I believe he can tackle Zouge. So it's a tough fight. It's the biggest ask out of those three, I think, Paul. Next up, it, it, that's a tough one, you know, because again, listen, I, I truly believe Callum Smith is the is the future of this super middleweight division. I truly mm. believe he will unify the division. And then I believe he'll move up to light heavyweight and win belts there as well. You know how big a fan of Callum Smith I am. Going to Los Angeles will be tough. Fight, you know, fighting a Darrell in, 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 on American soil, all that kind of stuff. The TV crew will be pro Darrell, everything else. You know, it's a Darrell, you know, it was Darrell's team that won the purse bid. So it's a Darrell event he mm. will be like the visitor uh, so that will give them advantages but i just believe that callum is a step above and i think he'll prove that on the night also on, on a similar vein i believe that on his night paul butler is genuinely world class and i think while as much as a, a rate mcdonald i think he's a great champion i just think that he may be on his way down the hill I think Paul Butler's hungry. He's on his way up the hill. I think he's got a new dynamic with him with Joe Gallagher as well. I think I know we both know how excited Joe Gallagher is about this relationship with Paul Butler and what Paul can do on the night. Mm. Um, and I just think that that could be, to be honest, I think that could be the easiest win. I think if he turns up and he turns up the way he can fight and produces the goods the way he can, I think that could be an easy win for him. I believe Callum's going to be a tough fight. Mm. I think Callum will win, but I think it's going to be a tough fight because they're really going to give the belt up. So you're going Butler, Callum, Paul Smith. In that order, yeah. yeah. For difficulty levels regarding whether it be location, whether it be yeah. opponent uh, and stage of career that these lads are currently at as well. I, uh, yes, completely. I'll commit to that. But what I will say is all three, all three will probably be betting underdogs, believe it or not. Because Callum's away from home, I think betting in Los Angeles will be to, in America will be yeah. towards Darrell. I think obviously McDonald's an experienced champion, and Butler is moving up away. You know, let's remember he's still he's still moving back, even though he's been a, a world he was champion world champion at this level before, before. But yeah. he moved back down. Now he's coming back up. I think McDonald will start as champ a favourite there, and obviously Paul Smith goes as the underdog to Germany. So, mm. incidentally, all three start as underdogs. Yeah, I believe Butler Smith. And then uh, Smigger at the end, Paul Smith at the end. This is going to uh, maybe annoy some people because they think I'm being extremely biased uh, towards this. Because you know that we have featured a lot of Joe Gallagher's fighters on this mm-hmm. show previously. I'm going to go out there now and say all three will win. Really? Yeah. Wow. Even Paul in Germany. And I know that people Paul's are going tough. to be, It's tough for it's Paul. It's very right? tough. Yeah, yeah, Extremely tough. But it's last chance alone. I think he knows that. Yeah. Um, and everything will be going into this. And I think Tyron Zug might just underestimate him a little bit because yeah. of what's what we've seen, obviously, what's previously with maybe Andre Ward and all these types of things. I think he might get underestimated. And if Paul Smith Jr. turns up on the night, as we know he can do, and he is underestimated... Mm-hmm. I just think it just might shine in his favour. I think we might get, and this is no disrespect to Paul because I do rate him as a fighter, I think we might get a Darren Barker situation. I, I genuinely do. I don't think he's going to reign for years and years and years to come. Again, Paul, no disrespect to you. But I think on this night, 
yeah. a week of Saturday, I think he just might be able to pull it off. It'd be amazing if he did. It'd be absolutely amazing. And it'd be one of the biggest wins for a British boxer, boxing abroad, just because of his, his situation. And, and the way it's all come about. Yeah, yeah, exactly, of course. You know, it, it's obviously a fight that people aren't queuing up to take. But, you know, People don't queue up to go to Germany to fight for titles because of the reputation Germans have got. But Paul knows now he's got no choice. If he wants that opportunity, he's got to travel. It's mm. not like he can get him over here. Christ, we can't even get the. You can't even win a pair speed to bring Dorelli to fight Callum. <laughs> so if if Callum's got to travel, then obviously Paul's got to travel. The the point I'm trying to make is if Paul is sparring with Callum every day, mm. and Paul is holding his own, and I'm sure he is. You know, if he's if he's managing Callum, if he's boxing Callum, I believe Callum is better than Tyron Zouge. Mm. So by by of you know. Lay that out. If he can handle Callum, he can handle Tyron Zou. So that that's where I am with it. That's where I am with it. But it's going to be tough. It's going to be. A, it's a big ask. Let's be honest. It's a big ask. Those three are the guarantees. We've spat yep. all around the two that we think might happen before the end of December. Beefy first. Then he's fighting Liam Williams. That's guaranteed. Yeah. Um, what's your gut feeling regarding the upgrade of this fight? Will it be upgraded to full world title level or do you think it will be still an eliminator then maybe stepping onto Miguel Cotto? Yeah, I think, you know, I'd love it to be stepped up, but you're right, the WBO have got this weird love affair with Miguel Cotto, so Cotto may well, they might make, because I know Cotto's got a, a fight lined up He's as well. He's got one coming up, yeah. Yeah, so they might, might just go, right, they're both official Two semi-finals, in you go. I exactly. think that's what will happen, yeah, and therefore yeah. there will have to be a second fight, hopefully before the end of the year, before Beefy gets uh, his hands on Miguel Cotto. Which, by the way, and I know that people, again, think I'm being biased towards this because you know how much I love Beefy. Yeah. Miguel Cotto isn't the Miguel Cotto from five years ago. No, no, definitely It's not, not the same guy. No. And I think Beefy has got might have his number. I genuinely think he might have his number in this particular I think fight. what would massively go in Beefy's favour in this occasion is the fact that he has been in with Canelo in 50,000 in Dallas. Yeah. So if, if he's handled that and he's come through that experience, then going into a fight with the likes of Miguel Cotto uh, isn't going to intimidate him because he's, he's been there and done it. And it'll be a similar setup. He'll be the away fighter. It'll probably be in America, whatever else. But it won't be as big as Canelo. Miguel Cotto isn't Canelo. Mm. He isn't that as big a star as that, as much as he's got a, a legendary career. Incidentally, it'd be, you know, obviously this is the this is a Merseyside fight show, so we we're backing. We want Liam Smith to win, but obviously that's a tough fight with Liam Williams. That the, the first oh, fight was yeah, unbelievable. Absolutely. The first fight was one of the one of the fights of the year before referee Terry O'Connor completely lost control and it and it got ruined. It was a great fight and it was shaping up to be a great fight. Williams was ahead before the fight got stopped and it had every narrative about it. So listen, that that's not again. Given. We said first time around this is a 50-50 fight and we're going into the rematch and I'll I'll say it again. It's a 50-50 fight. Yes, I believe. Callum, uh, Liam Smith won't start as slowly this time. I think he's going to go after it a bit more because when he put the pressure on Liam Williams, that's when he started to dominate the fight. Mm. When he stood off Liam Williams and let Liam Williams box him, that's when he was in trouble. So listen, that's a that's a real 50-50 fight. But incidentally, in that fight, you do, Liam Williams has got a Miguel Cotto tattoo. So how weird would that be? <laughs> a little bit. If he went on to fight Miguel Cotto can you sign with a it? tattoo. Yeah, can, can you, you sign, sign that? wonder if Cotto would, would consider getting a Liam Williams tattoo to kind of balance it out maybe. I don't think it's going to happen, mate. I'm going to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, and then finally, just in a word, um, if Bellew is the man that gets Joe Parker, yeah, man. does he become heavyweight champion of course he does. Oh, need- Flatten the big Kiwi. Not a problem. <laughs> Flatten him. Uh, November, December is when we're expecting that. It will happen um, in the UK because as we've said, Bell, you ain't travelling for anybody. And yeah. also, Joe Parker wants to come here to showcase his talents to maybe get a shot at AJ, if obviously he comes through Bell, you, which then lines us up nicely. It's got to be it's got to be in Liverpool at some point, hasn't it? It can't yeah. go anywhere else. It's got to be in Liverpool. Definitely. There you go. Um, more on this as we hear more 
throughout the next uh, couple of months. But as we said right at the start of the show, the next six months for Merseyside Boxing could be the biggest in its entire history. Just gets better and better and better. Uh, coming up, we are switching uh, sides. We are going to go and have a little bit of a chat about UFC because it's been a huge year for Michael Bisping having uh, become uh, the UFC middleweight champion of the world. First man from these shows to be able to do that. Uh, so stick around for it. And of course, with it being a year uh, since uh, the great Muhammad Ali passed away, we are going to pay tribute to him in the final part of the show. Make sure you stick with us. You're listening to The Fight Disciples. You're listening to The Fight Disciples podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, referee John McCarthy's called a stop to this contest at three minutes, 36 seconds of the very first round. Declaring the winner by knockout and new undisputed UFC middleweight champion of the world, Michael the Count B. Still sounds as fresh today as it did near enough a year and a day ago when Michael Bisping became the UFC middleweight champion of the world. Still sounds good, that, doesn't it? Still Mental. sounds good. It's something I never, ever imagined we'd be saying. Michael Bisping as world champion. As world champion. Because of how many shots he's had. <sighs> how many times did he fall at the final hurdle? He was the nearly man. Completely. 100%. And, he, and you know, I, I truly believe he'd still be the nearly man if it wasn't for the fact that the Luke Rockhold opportunity give, come up with two weeks' notice. Give us a little bit of background on that. For, for people that maybe aren't into the UFC, we just want to give you a little bit of context on this. Because even though Michael Bisping isn't a scouser, and this is our Merseyside um, fight show... He is from the Northwest. And because I'm from basically next door to his house, I thought we'd shoehorn him some way into the show. <laughs> He's obviously a Clitheroe boy. I'm a Blackburn boy. Uh, so we're practically brothers. We're probably related in some way, shape or form. Uh, so it's only fair that we sh- we celebrate Bisping's achievement a year ago where he became uh, the first man from these shows uh, to hold a world title in the UFC. Give us a bit of context yeah. of one, Bisping's career, and two, how this comes about, like you say, on two weeks' notice. Obviously, Bisping was based on Merseyside. He was based out of witness. For, Good. For well done. You, now we're decided in. It's legitimate now that we can talk about it. Go on, carry on. <laughs> he was based out of witness, obviously, at the uh, famous Wolf Slayer gym for an awful long time, for many, many years before he moved to America. Um, so he, he's obviously got strong ties with, with Merseyside anyway. Uh, in terms of his career, you know, this was a guy that's he, he put UK MMA on the map. He was the first British guy to compete on the Ultimate Fighter. Not only did he compete on it, he won it. Yeah. Um, so he was basically the first, you know, there was a couple of guys before, but he was the first real young rising star to come into the UFC and look like they could do something, look like they could win, actually make a name for themselves. He started as a light heavyweight, come down to middleweight over the course of his career. He's had more fights in the UFC than I think pretty much every other UK fighter combined. Uh, you know, he's been a, a real staple of the UFC for many, many years on big shows, pay-per-views, everything else. But the problem with Michael Bisping is... As a middleweight contender, he's never been outside the top 10. You know, we're talking for years and years and years he's been in the top 10. But every time he's had what has been seen as a final eliminator or one sh- one shot and you win this and then you'll get that, he's always fallen over. And as you say, you know, Vita Belfort, Luke Rockhold. Dan Henderson first time round. Dan Henderson. There's so many times when it's happened to him and he just couldn't get over the line. And he got tagged with it. You know, he was tagged with the nearly man and it was looked like it was never going to happen. Then a year ago, or a little over a year ago, Luke Rockhold, who six months before had obliterated Michael Bispin in Australia, um, he was supposed to fight Chris Weidman for the middleweight belt. And it was, you know, the big fight that everyone was building up. Rockhold was the new champion. It looked like he was going to reign for a long time. He'd looked fantastic since he'd won the belt. 
Then two weeks before the fight, there's an injury. So now Luke Rockhold needs an opponent. And who do they call? They call Michael Bispin, or Dana White famously calls Michael Bispin. Do you think he was the first on the list to get the call? Um, no, he probably wasn't. Because at the time, there was Jack Ray knocking yeah, about exactly, and yeah, all these yeah. guys. Do you yeah. reckon they got the call and said two weeks is too too short to more notice? Than, more than likely, yeah, because Bispin wasn't the number one contender. So yeah. they must have gone down a list first and they've gone, oh, not at two weeks now. I can't be ready in two weeks. The difference was, because Bispin had always fallen short, he'd always fallen short, they rang Bispin. Luckily enough, he's in Canada making one of these triple X movies with Vin Diesel. Hmm. Because he's on, in Michael's, Mike's own words, because he's in, in a movie, he's running every day, he's watching his weight because he doesn't want to look like a fat fella. Well, do, you want, do, you, do you want me to stop you there? Because the obviously we caught up with him before, course, his, yeah, yeah, before yeah. his date in Manchester. We caught up with him. He can tell this story himself better than us yeah, yeah. of how that all came about. Two weeks notice, he got the call. This is Bispin in his own words of how we, how we went about taking the shot. You know, I mean, I've come close to fighting for the belt many times and um, and I stumbled. You know, and it is what it is now. Of course, I could explain that some of these guys were on steroids and this and that, but we haven't got all day. The fact of the matter is, I lost some key matchups, some number one contender matchups. And of course, I'm 37, and you've got to be a realist. Mm. Now, I do well out of fighting. You know, it, it, you know, it compensates me very well. My family have a great lifestyle, and I'm, I'm still competing with the best guys in the world. But there was a part of me that thought, you've got to be realistic. Maybe. You know, maybe I'm not going to be the champion. And I kind of resigned myself to that. Now, that doesn't mean I was never going to stop trying. Mm. It just meant that I was comfortable with where I was. I was still You were at peace with it. I was at peace with it. If yes. it, I was at peace with the fight. If I never become the champion, well, so be it. Okay. I, I went, I set out on this endeavour to be a professional fighter, to take care of my family and my children. I've achieved that. I, I'm, I'm doing a job that people would dream to do. And, and I still very much enjoy it. So great. But then the opportunity came to uh, fight for the belt on 10 days notice, which was bittersweet as well, because I remember as soon as I found out, I went for a run. I was filming the Triple X movie that we were talking about. I've been on set for six weeks in Canada. You know, yeah, I've been training. I've been doing a lot of training. And uh, <laughs> there'd been a little bit of partying here and there as well, of course. Well, rightfully so. you just come off the back of a win against Anderson Silva. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so to be honest, I had been training. I was running most days and I was lifting, but I wasn't training. You went fight training. Marsh. I wasn't. No, I was just making sure I looked good in the movie. Um, and I went for a run that day and I was I was running and I'll be honest I, I was almost crying as I was running because I thought I've wanted this for so long I wanted it the for title so long. shot the title shot I wanted to fight for the belt that's uh, I was so hungry for that and now here I am I've been given it on 10 days notice it's, I've been stitched up but if I don't take it now I'm never going to get it mm-hmm. you know and I thought well screw it I'll take it and I went out there and knocked him out in the first round. How'd you so, get the weight off, man? Was it salt baths? Is it just it, pure it and weird. giving it everything it you've got? So the moment, that moment before I went on that run, I was actually walking into a gym just to have a little, you know, lift a few yeah, weights, yeah. just, you know, throw a few weights around and nothing too crazy. <laughs> Sweat off my hangover, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm walking in and um, I get the phone call. So I, I go straight to the scale, straight to the scale. And I get on the scale and it says 212 pounds. Wow. Now in 10 days, I have to be 185 yeah, yeah, yeah. pounds. So in kilos, okay, let's put it in kilos. It's like 96 kilos and I have to be 84 kilos in 10 days. And I'm like, wow, never mind the weights. I need to run. So that's when I went on the run I was talking about. With and you know what? Mirac- the old bin bag. Get the old bin bag on, sweat it off. Well, do you know what? You're not a million miles away. And miraculously, 
the weight just kind of fell off. It really did. Now, for those people that are trying to lose weight, if you're eating a crappy diet, which kind of, you know, my of diet at the time wasn't too good. It's full of sodium, a lot of carbs. Every gram of carbohydrate that you ingest, your body hangs on to four grams of water. So if you eliminate all the carbohydrate, you eliminate all the salts and all the sugars and all the crap that's in a lot of nasty foods, mm. you actually lose a lot of weight. So within three, four days, I was down to like 205, 204. Wow. So by the time it came to the weight cut, I was down to 200 pounds. Day before the weigh-in, sweated off the last 12 pounds in a salt bath. Boom. Easy. Easy. And, and literally, boom, when yeah, you, when you in, got into the octagon. Left hook Larry. That's what I've been nicknamed now. That's what, It actually comes from an old friend of mine from Clitheroe. <laughs> There's a mate of mine in Clitheroe. We call him Left Duck Larry. We'll tell you about that one another time. From back in the day. <laughs> from back in the day, outside the Swan and Royal. <laughs> boom, Left Duck Larry. He was forever christened Left Duck Larry. Anyway, so I stole his name, went out there, first round. Yeah, took care of business, pound for pound, one of the best in the world, world champion, put him to sleep. And the rest, as they say, my friend, is absolute history. He becomes yeah. the first guy from these shores to become UFC, UFC champion. world champion. Amazing. In the following year, mm-hmm. how has that changed the way that maybe fight fans here look at the UFC? Yeah. Do you think it's grown, uh, the fan base here in the uh, from the UK? Because it is predominantly a, 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 an American, a South American sport. Obviously, yeah. he's had to go out there to make his living. Yeah. Um, with the way that things are shown, obviously with the time of day that it's on, it's very difficult to capture people's imaginations at three o'clock in the morning, isn't it, out there? So how do you think it's changed? Uh, I think, do you know what? I think the UFC, funnily enough, have missed the boat a little bit with Bisping in the UK, purely because at the same, you know, literally within the same time frame that Bisping won the title, um, I think it was a couple of weeks later, IMG bought out the Fatita Brothers and bought the UFC. Yeah, you're right, yeah. So they've bought the UFC, got rid of all the top execs, you know, done, done what happens with all these massive big corporation mergers is when, when, a, when a takeover happens, you get rid of everybody on big wages, you streamline your entire operation, you come back to a core and then you grow out again. And I think the timing couldn't have been worse in terms of the UFC are doing less here in the UK than they had done previously because we they haven't really ca- captured on the imagination and built on that Bisping brand. However, mixed martial arts as a sport definitely has. Mm. You know, there's, there's other promotions, regional promotions like Bama, um, like Cage Warriors who are back now, like Bellator, like UFC's biggest rival based out of America is a, is a brand called Bellator, as we know. And Bellator have done three or four shows in the UK in the last 12 months. It's like Bellator have gone, wow, they've got a world champion now. Let's jump on the back of it. Let's do shows over there because there's a face for it. Do you think before the buyout, though, there was a plan there to do more in the UK? Because they'd already, pl- they, obviously they did yeah. the Manchester show. There'll be people listening here now thinking, well, they came to Manchester and, 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 and he fought here in Manchester and that was great. But that, yeah. was, that was agreed just before the buyout. In fact, that, I think that might even have been the first show yeah. under new ownership, even though new ownership didn't have anything to do with the show in Manchester. They'd already committed to it, yeah. Off the back of that, obviously, we've had UFC London, good show. We've got UFC Glasgow coming up. There's been yep. a few more around Europe, obviously, with Stockholm and various things like that. Yeah. But there's not really been any commitment to say... No, it's been a similar number to what we've had previous years. There hasn't been a big yeah. in, in, you know, influx from the UFC where they go, wow, they've got a world champion there now, right? Let's get Bispin on Question of Sports. Let's get him on Jonathan Ross. Let's do another show in London and a show in Manchester and a show here, which you would you would think they would have done to ride the back of yeah. this this wave of Bisping getting in, but unfortunately the timing of the UFC with the with the buyout and everything else has just kind of worked against that. But as I say, the growth of MMA has certainly exploited it because you know we're seeing uh, promotions from Russia 
like uh, ACB are coming over here and doing shows regularly. Here now. in the UK, yeah. In the UK. So the, the, everyone else has kind of got onto the fact that the U, U, UK is this growing market, which the UFC know. They've, they've highlighted that before. But they're just not in a position to exploit it right now. But when they are, and I believe that will be next year and moving forward, when they are, then I think that's when we'll probably see a, a, another spike in growth again. But he's certainly raised interest. You know, mm. we've certainly got more fans attending MMA events than ever before, and part of that's because of Bisping. You've just mentioned there that maybe next year will be the time where the new owners kick on with their growth here in the UK. But by that time, Michael Bisping might not be the middleweight <laughs> yeah. champion of the world because there's a lot going on at the moment. He's injured. Um, hopefully, he's in a, a nice recuperation period. Hopefully, we're going to get the GSP fight. Mm-hmm. If he comes through that, then you would think that he would have to fight the interim champion, which might be um, either Bobby Knuckles, Robert Whittaker, mm-hmm. or Yo Romero. Um, and listen, th- these aren't givens. No. He, you know what I mean? He might not come through those fights, and therefore we might lose that strap. So away from that, and that's not a disrespect to Mike, that's just yeah. the way that UFC goes sometimes in mixed martial arts. Where's the next champion coming from? Yeah, exactly. And that's what they've got to try, try and concentrate on now, because... This market now, we've had a taste of it. We've had a taste of, of, of what it... Well, we haven't really. We've got a UFC champion that we celebrate, but he doesn't live here. So we haven't seen him on the talk shows and doing the rounds no. like we should have done. We were lucky that he came to Manchester to fight Dan Henderson. I mean, that was a great yeah. night, and it, but it definitely got a lot of interest from UK fans I agree. There. And you know what? I think an element of that as well was probably Bisping going, OK, I'll take the fight with Rockhold at two weeks' notice. I'll step in. But you know when I win this thing, and even then, I yeah, think we Mike was, was fantasised about it. If I win this, you've got to let me go home and defend it in Manchester. You've got to let me mm. take the belt back. Uh, and the whole Dan Henderson thing came in afterwards. And in terms of next generation of talent, you know, we've got so much, certainly from the Northwest as well. Obviously, Danny Roberts and Darren Till, who we'll hopefully have on the show uh, soon. And obviously, two welterweights that are doing really well. There's some talent coming out of Scotland with Stevie Ray and Paul Craig. Obviously, Mark Jacquesi, we're both huge fans of. Um, For me, the next... Jacquesi will be a world champion. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you that now. But it's not going to be for the next two years. No. Because he just won't get his shot. He's got to work his way up the rankings. Of course. The man that's closest is Jimmy Manoa. Yeah, completely, yeah. Jimmy, yeah, definitely. Because, uh, you know, he's literally one decent social media argument away from the title, <laughs> which is crazy. Obviously, Jimmy, uh, for me, Jimmy is still behind Alexander Gustafsson in the pecking order of being the guy to face the winner of Daniel Cormier versus John Jones, which, as we know, is coming up in a couple of weeks. Jimmy's also got um, a fight at UFC 214 coming up. Yeah, exactly. So that that's kind of taken him off that radar but he's got to he's got to get there you know he's got to earn his stripes he's, he's on a great run of form right now um, but he's, he's got to get there before Alexander Gustafsson as well because they mm. both both publicly said they will not fight each other because they're now teammates mm. so that'll be interesting if Jimmy if whoever gets there first does win the belt then what does the other guy do go up to heavyweight potentially because Jimmy's already said he'll go up to heavyweight mm. he'll happily go up to heavyweight so that'd be interesting will be interesting and if you want to know more about the UFC and mixed martial arts in general we do do a show every single Thursday on our website go to it fightdisciples.com this week we will be reviewing what we saw at the weekend and boy did we see something at the weekend it was absolutely amazing UFC 212 the full review is going to be on our website fightdisciples.com available for you Thursday morning you can also get it through iTunes please write us a review if you hit the subscribe button much appreciated uh, coming next, whether it be boxing, whether it be martial arts uh, or the UFC, there wouldn't be anything to this magnitude without the greatest of all time. That greatest of all time is, of course, Muhammad Ali. Going to pay a little bit of a tribute to him next. This is the Fight Disciples podcast. Subscribe now via the iTunes store. Can you believe that it's been a year since Muhammad Ali died? That time has absolutely flown. 
At the time of hearing of his passing, I caught up with one of my favourite boxing historians, David Anderson from the Daily Mirror. We had a little bit of a chat about the great fights that Muhammad Ali was involved with during his time. And if you haven't heard this little piece that I did uh, approximately 12 months ago, here it is again for you. Enjoy this trip down Ali Lane. You're listening to the Fight Disciples podcast. If I'm honest, I don't know where to start with this. Um, I'm going to go boxing second, if that's all right, because the thing that interests me the most about Muhammad Ali is probably uh, the more humanitarian stance uh, that he took. Uh, in particular, uh, his view on uh, the Vietnam War in 1967, which which ended up leading to him uh, being sentenced to five years in, pr- in prison. At that time, obviously I wasn't born then, um, but at that time with what we know now as historians, with the way that uh, black people were looked at in America, with the way that people didn't stand up to authority, all that type of stuff, huge, huge game changer, not as a boxer, but just a game changer in society. Well, well it was, because it was essentially the America's white uh, establishment, you know, basically, you know, sort of, uh, you know, picking this fellow and victimising him, really, saying, oh, if you don't... Uh, you know, go off and uh, join the draft list, and we will sort of, uh, you know, sanction. Of course, the, the, the word boxing bodies were quite happy to go along with that and actually stripped them of his, uh, his world titles, really. And it's just, it's just in some respects, it, his death has just reminded us how far we've come, really, and especially America's coming on race relations, you know, since that time, because you're, you're absolutely staggered to believe this. And it's also that other story about Ali when he won his gold medal at the, the Rome Games in 1960 and came back home to... Yeah. To the Louisville, Kentucky, and I thought, this is fantastic, you know, I was feeling great, I'm going to go downtown and get myself well, just a coffee and a hot dog, and uh, was told, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't serve Negroes, and, you know, you know, even these terminologies, it's, it's just staggering to believe that they, they were doing that, you know, back then, and, you know, but as you see, he, he was one man who stood up for this and said, no, this isn't right, we're going to change this, and he did. And change it, he did. I mean, he was prepared to sacrifice his own career. And that, that was the measure of the man, really, because we all talk about sacrifice and you know life and sport these days and I'll talk about oh yeah I've sacrificed a lot you know I, I don't go out socializing I don't drink you know I just focus on my training and I do this and I do that and I'm dedicated and I go to bed and just get 10 hours kept and stuff as you say this was somebody as you said at the, at the peak of the powers and you said remember the world heavyweight champion of the world it was a covenant of being like the, the 100 meter Olympic champion you were one of the yeah. top sports people in the world and as you say he was prepared to to give that all up, um, you know, because he, he, he objected to the war. And, of course, the reason why I objected to the war, he, he was bringing race into it again. He was saying, well, um, you know, you look at the oppression that we have suffered here, you know, when we black people over, you know, a couple of centuries in America, you know, I don't think that's anything compared to, you know, whatever some Viet Cong are doing over there in Vietnam. And was saying, OK, there may be a few bad ones, but, you know, he was sort of justifying it as well. It wasn't just a case of, oh, oh don't want to do it. And as you say, to put everything it fought so hard for on the line and to sort of, be persecuted like he was and you know he was pilloried really you know mm. by the establishment and you know they, they, stuff like they, they took away his passport he couldn't even like you know come and like nowadays you would just remember we had the famous David A and Chisor thing where they, yeah. they wouldn't be licensed British boxing board so instead they were licensed by Luxembourg and he didn't even have the option of fighting outside the US because he took his passport away from him it, it was awful he was forced to make a living uh, another way the, the thing that out of that whole incident that I like the most is because obviously he was convicted of draft evasion, which alludes to the fact that he went on the run. He, 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 he hid away from something. He didn't. By, no. by far, by, by means, he did not hide. He turned up to the draft. He turned up for it, and he made a stance, and he basically looked 
the authorities in the eye and refused to step forward. That was the whole process, and that was the powerful images that we've seen over the last couple of days being re- replayed. Well, this is it. And of course, he was then went around the cause. He became a, a campaigner, you know, uh, against the war. And he, yep. I think the, the thing about him, Adam, what, what strikes you, he was a bit like Mandela. He was way ahead of his time because at the time, people thought, oh, this is, this is, he's, a, he's a traitor, he's unpatriotic, you know, he's disloyal, he should be doing this. You know, and then you look at him, and he was way ahead of the curve in terms of these arguments. Now, whereas if you were trying to argue today, oh, um, shall we fight a big war in Southeast Asia and send like hundreds of thousands of troops over to try and prop up some sort of, you know, yeah. corrupt type regime? What do you think about that? And if you actually said, yes, you're the one who'd be criticizing, told you're, you're loony and all the rest of mm. it, really. But, but yeah, he, I say he was, he was ahead in these debates. And it's almost he could see what was right you know, before anyone else could. No, absolutely. Let's move on to his boxing because this was a, the talent that made, well, I have a look back at all these videos now and this is I, I'm amazed if I was to see this and be lucky enough to be ringside at any of these fights today it's one of those that you you tell your grandkids about don't you you go I, hey, I was there when this particular thing happened yeah. I've just picked out five fights now other people will have their own fond memories I've just picked out five uh, I'm going to start back in 1964 Sonny Liston yeah, yeah uh, as a 22 year old boy in a way just starting out his career Liston undefeated um, obviously, for those that know a little bit about this fight, there was obviously the uh, the escapade with the stringent on Liston's gloves, which got into Ali's eyes. Um, he ended up winning the fight and becoming the heavyweight champion of the world. Just just everything was up against him. I think he was 7-1 to one in a two-horse race yeah. in that fight to win it. Sensational performance from him. And it was, and of course, back, back then, I always think it's a bit like when Jack Nicholas came through and deposed Arnold Palmer at the time. People didn't like it because Arnold Palmer was a respected sort of champion. And the same way they looked at Ali as a sort of outspoken, brash, trash-talking upstart. And, mm. you know, who is he, really? Who is this guy? I think he is at 22 years. He's come along talking like that about... Um, but Sonny Liston, of course, even then he was saying, was he smells like a bear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, yeah. You know, winding him up and stuff. And yeah, and yeah, he did it. You know, he did it. And he, as we all know, the famous quote in Africa is, I shook up the world, really. And, yeah. and he absolutely did talk about, you know, announcing your arrival on, on the world scene. It was absolutely sensational. I picked out Cleveland Williams in 1966 because it's the first time that we got to see the Ali Shuffle. Yeah, well, it was just it was just sort of a, just, <laughs> just sensation because of course that's what it, what he was about. It wasn't just about the boxing; it was about being the showman as well, about yeah. uh, entertaining the fans, about you know putting on a spectacle really. And you're right, and as you say, it's like, and and ever since then, like even we saw when Tyson Fury was was fighting Klitschko that time, you know he was trying to do a little bit of Ali shuffle, a little bit of the you know the windmill winding one arm mm. up and then punch him with the other one, you know that those sorts of tricks really to sort of make your opponent look. Look foolish, but of course, <laughs> he was the one who sort of popularised it back then. No, absolutely. A lot of people will obviously have their own memories of the Henry Cooper situation when Henry Cooper put him on his backside. But in 1971, he took on Frazier for the first time. How blessed do you think he was to be around Frazier, Foreman, and therefore have the top, top, I mean, we're talking top elite heavyweights in his in his era, I suppose. You're right, because it, 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 as an era or as you know, we always talk about if you're a team or an individual, you can only beat what's out there. And sometimes we'll look back and, and certain years, well, you know, well, there wasn't a lot of competition really. But but you're right, he, he was sort of blessed in that sense. And that these were, uh, everywhere you looked, you know, you could chuck in Ken Norton, you chuck in Ernie Shavers as well. These, these were these were huge, huge fights. And in some respects, I always feel sorry for the, the likes of Norton and Shavers. They <laughs> would have been yeah. world champions in their own. You know, they they could have their own glory. If it hadn't been, you know, for um, you know, for for what for what he was sort of doing, uh, but it was really because, of course, when you had 
you know, guys as good as that, you have to make yourself even better to be them. Of course, that drew the best out of him. Like you might talk about the fight of the century was a little bit undercooked because he'd only come back from a sort of suspension, really, yeah. and maybe that fight was a wee bit too soon from him against Joe Frazier, who was absolutely pumped up and you know in, in his prime, really. But again, it just set it up for the second and the, the third fights culminating in the the thriller in Manila, really. But you, but you say everybody needs that, you know, Borg um, and sort of back and roll stuff. You all need that sort of other guy to sort of hit against and he was very fortunate he had like sort of you know two two or three of them well that one in 1971 was his first pro loss but the thing I like the most about it yes the fight was brilliant but even Frank Sinatra couldn't get a ticket for it that's how popular this thing was yeah I think he had to blag his way in as a photographer for, for Life, Life magazine yeah <laughs> yeah the hardest thing and you hear all the stories about um uh, they, they did the way in. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the hotel across from Madison Square Garden. They did the way in, and the, such was the throng of people they literally couldn't, they, they couldn't get back out, you know, from from the arena back into the hotel. It was just it was just so sort of blocked with people, and even the New York police could not clear a path them because, as you say, it was just unbelievable. Everybody wanted to see it, and then. You know, if that were possible, it just seemed to get bigger and bigger, you know, going to, like, the rumble in the jungle as well, you know, which which you could argue is... Is that, that the best? Was that the best one, 1974 rumble in the jungle with Foreman? I think well, what I would say about that, I classify it as pos- is the greatest sporting event, the, the greatest spectre, but because of the build-up and because everything that went to it, because of the fact of where it was, because of the fact it was postponed, because of the fact it went on and on, and the fact that him and Foreman were going at it and... You know, I think because everything had led to that point, you know, that the, the fight of the century, then winning his rematch of Frazier, which in 74, then put him in line, um, you know, for that one. But I know I know what you mean. Other people talk about the thrill of the middle of being the greatest fight they've ever seen where two blokes absolutely points themselves to. Yeah, yeah. To, to I'm talking about, like you said, sporting upsets. I mean, we're talking about George Foreman here, who, who was battering everybody for fun in that particular division. Yeah. And everybody had said even the great Muhammad Ali won't beat this guy. And the way that he went about it, inventing in his own words the rope up for that particular fight, just the manner of the way that he pulled off this victory, yeah. that underdog victory, just well, sensational. Because right. you would have said, if you were writing down, right, okay, if you got possibly the heaviest hitting everywhere of all time, what must you not do? Okay, right, let's, let's, let's <laughs> let not him get beat him. Yeah. yeah, let's not get it. Let's punch and move. Let's punch and move. You know, let, 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 let's tire him out. You know, let, let's do it that way there. And as you say, what does he do? As you say, he literally makes and turns himself into a punch bag and, and just absorbs it all, uh, knowing that he was tiring him out and that he could then sort of punch. Who, who else would come up with a strategy? Anyone else would just say, you're completely mental. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yet he did it, you know. But, but I suppose maybe it, it maybe said a little bit more by that stage, Adam, you know, where he was, because that perhaps the sort of the quick hands, the quick speed, you know, that old, you know, uh, float like a butterfly thing, I mean, that, that has gone. I think in some respects, his, his exile robbed him of a lot of that, mm. you know, speed, really. So I suppose, which again is a tribute to the bloke, where he found a way to win. He sort of says, right, well, here's the strategy which will win me this fight at this stage of my career. 32-year-old, and uh, he, he did it. Every every fighter, obviously, since Ali, you, um, we all have our favourites, and therefore you, they will all have those defining moments where maybe it's just one fight or two fights. For example, Tony Bellew last week at Goodison. Yep. That's his defining moment. That's his yep. moment. You look at Ali, and you think to yourself, I'm struggling to get it down to five. You know, yeah, I've, yeah, I've, I've had to eliminate yeah. how many other ones that yeah. are, are in there. We mentioned Henry Cooper. It's not made my five list. Yeah, that's right. You know, as you said, the two Cooper shots, and you even talk about that Ernie Shavers fight again, yeah. right, where he talks about, well, he hit me so hard, even my ancestors <laughs> Africa <laughs> felt it. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just incredible, incredible fights. As you, as you say, I think, Adam, like you said, he was sort of blessed that there were so many top quality yeah. op- opponents are, around. And as you say, in career as well, you know, when you sort of think about it, 
if you Floyd, he beat Floyd Patterson. Yeah. You know, when you think of the names, he started off by beating Liston, and, and he, you know, he ends up by winning his rematch with Leon Spinks. But then, of course, Larry Holmes comes around, which is a completely different era, and by then it's yeah. way too late. He should have been gone by then. But to see a career that sort of, you know, sort of started with sort of beating the likes of Liston and then sort of was ended by, um, uh, you know, losing a sort of Larry Holmes. What, what, what a, you know, that's such a slice of world heavyweight history. And there's even the final fight against Burbeck, and of course Burbeck was... Mike Tyson's opponent when he first yeah. won his world title in, in the '86 and stuff. It's just, it's just incredible, as you say, to to fit. It's not so much a man's career; it's almost to fit, you know, boxing history into one <laughs> career. Really, you see all those fights all, against all those guys and all those countries, you know, as well. It was absolutely sensational. The beautiful thing about him and what we've seen over the weekend is that he hasn't just inspired fighters that generation and paved the way for the way that they earn money now and the way that they go about their business. He was the original. He was the original rock star of the sport, but he is he transcends the sport. He, he inspires people, uh, whether it's uh, whatever colour skin you are, whatever career path you decide, there's always an Ali quote somewhere that someone yeah. maybe draws upon in order to inspire themselves. We see that. That's it. Funny, when I was thinking about this over the weekend, I was trying to write my pieces, right? Because on the one hand, you're all the sport and achievements, and you're right, they are fantastic, historic, you know, first man when the world have a title three times. But then you're right, what... what makes him a lot bigger, as you say, is because, like we spoke about at the first part of it, you know, what, what he was prepared to give up, you know, to stand up for his beliefs. And, his, and that's where his real legacy for me is. And that's why, you know, I was just trying to think in the second half of the 20th century, apart from Nelson Mandela, is any other figure, you know, who, who, who changed the whole world like he did. And, you know, stuff, as you say, taught us to be brave, taught you to stand up for what you believe in, no matter what the cost uh, to stand up for what's right, you know, to, 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 you know, even if it's, it's not what the, what the majority of people yeah. say, really. And, and, say, and just be an example for everyone. And as you say, you can have other people, maybe like Malcolm X, and you can say, well, Malcolm X was maybe still adopted, maybe sort of by black people. But you see, everybody around the world knew him. Everybody has learned from him. Everybody wants to be like him. And you see, that's sensational. It's like we are saying before about somebody who's been ostracized by white America, and yet... From Jimmy Carter onwards, they were queuing up that, you know, to invite him to the White House to be seen with him. It was almost like the ultimate kudos was to be seen with Muhammad Ali and to have your picture taken with him. You know, the most famous human being of, of his time, really. Oh, Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe via iTunes.